And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? Not very well? Okay, let's just, let's go ahead and pray right now. Um, yeah, I hope you're doing well. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll look at verses 12 through 36. We're taking a big chunk out of the Gospel of Luke here today. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Certainty in a world of doubt. We're going to talk about true community. True community. A man is being tailgated by a stressed out woman. Anybody relate to that? You're afraid to even acknowledge that, aren't you? A man is being uh, tailgated by a stressed out woman. He comes to an intersection and the light turns yellow. Generally, in Arizona, we all understand what the colors of the spot, uh, stoplight mean. Red means? Okay, good, good. Green means? And yellow means? Oh my goodness. You guys are messed up. I heard someone say, go faster, accelerate. So the light turns yellow, and he stops, and the woman behind him goes ballistic. She's yelling at him, waving at him, and in mid-rant, someone taps on the window of her car. It's a policeman. He takes her to the station where she is fingerprinted and photographed and locked up in a cell. And after a couple hours... They let her out after the arresting officer gives her back her personal effects, and he says, I'm very sorry for the mistake. Here's how it happened. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing the horn and using bad gestures and bad language, and then I noticed the no Jesus, no peace bumper sticker and the choose life license plate holder and the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and your church logo sticker on the back window, and naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. Okay. Take a look at your sermon notes there. Here, part of our intro. Here's the segue. The life change, the life change and the influence in culture that God most longs for. So the life change God wants in your life and the influence he wants of us together in culture, the influence in culture that he most longs for best happens through Christians in true community. Now, lest you think what you might think you know what true community is, I kind of gave you a little bit of a definition. This whole teaching this morning is about true community, but uh, here's my definition. These are people who are not just checking the church box on weekends and getting lost in the crowd. Stop there just for a minute. This is what you need to know. In our church, in our day of mega churches, churches that grow and are big and, and we're in a category that we, are, we would be considered very big, it's so easy for us to embrace the value, which is wrong, anonymity and individualistic, uh, individualism. And that's very common in our culture. We just kind of check the church box, go through the motions. There's no connection deeper than what we see on Sunday mornings, and that's very superficial. But these are people who are not just checking the church box on weekends, getting lost in the crowd, but are getting into small groups, meeting in homes, and enjoying meals together, and talking about real-life issues as they listen, love, laugh, and learn how to live a contagious Christian life. And here's a statement you hear a lot around here at Desert Breeze. Church is a place, Desert Breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become family. That's true community. 
So, so here's my challenge. It's got to be more than just what you do here on weekend service. And by the way, you need to come here regularly on weekend services. That needs to be, needs to be a value. It needs to be consistent. But you've got to go beyond this or you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow, nor will we have the kind of community that will have an impact uh, in society. And so this is what we're talking about this morning, true community, why we need it, what are its characteristics, and what should motivate it. That's where we're headed. But before we uh, take a look at this text, very lengthy text, I think it's worth reading the whole text through. It's a really powerful text. And before we read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again? So Father God, the Trinity shows us that you have been experiencing community throughout all eternity. And you created us because you were so in love with community that you wanted a world full of people to share it with. But by our sin, we have messed it all up, but by your grace, you have reconciled us to be reconcilers, to have the ministry of reconciliation. So with Jesus as the cornerstone, may we build something as beautiful as true community. We pray in your son's beautiful and holy name, and everyone said... Amen. So take a look at this text. Let me work through this text. I'll comment very briefly as we work through that. I kind of want you to understand kind of how it's laid out. And, um, and so Luke 6, starting in verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now stop there just for a minute. So, so he's selecting his, his disciples, his apostles here, and what we've come to here now is Jesus is selecting the 12 apostles and he's about to teach them the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in verse 20. So there's a crowd gathering around him. He heals a bunch of the folks. But he begins to teach them the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of important to understand as we work through this. And the Sermon on the Mount is the best place to see what Christianity looks like when it is being lived out, what true community best looks like. And uh, Luke gives us an abbreviated version compared to Matthew's account in chapters 5 through 7. So if you want to go into a more detailed account, you go back to Matthew chapter, chapters 5 through 7. So, verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him and healed them all. Now he's going to move into this uh, Sermon on the Mount, and what he's going to give us, first of all, are really uh, God's values. So if you're hanging out with God and his people and, uh, and you're understanding true community, these are the values you're going to begin to have in your life. And he says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, that's, that's an important word, now, now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now he moves from God's kingdom values to the world's values. So he's gonna give us the world's values. He's making this contrast. And by the way, so he's making a distinction here that those that are within his kingdom, within his family, his bride, his people are gonna have these values in contrast to the world's values. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. There's that word now again. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. He's made that contrast. Now he moves from the values that we should have within the Christian community to how we should treat people who are outside of our Christian community. And he says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. That almost sounds crazy, doesn't it? He's, he's, gonna, he's gonna make a, a really an important point here as we work through this. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who, who abuse you. He's actually talking about kind of an inside work that has to happen within your heart. We'll get to that in a minute. And then he works on the outside. Here's the outside, what the outside should look and how we relate to others. He says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. What in the world is he talking about there? He's saying that you should be radically generous with what God has given you. Radical generosity marks those who really know my kingdom and are living in the reality of what I offer them and who I am in them. And then he kind of summarizes it in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's classified as a golden rule. And then he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, now, what's fascinating about this, this is the only time that Jesus even uses this language. It almost sounds like he's speaking pejoratively. He's like, oh, you, you know those sinners those sinners over there, they, they do that. That's not very high moral ground there that you would love someone that would love you back because you're just loving them because they love you back. But what about if you love people that don't love you back? That's the idea here. And so he's using this language. You're gonna see him use this three times. But those sinners, by the way, we do that in our culture today. This place, this country would be a good country if it wasn't for those liberals. Those Democrats, and then of course the Democrats are saying, those li the liberals, the Democrats are saying, oh, but it's those Republicans, they're not as open-minded as we are. It's those sinners, that's what they're saying. Of course the atheists would say it's the Christians, it's religion that's fouling this place up. We need to be more secular. It's not a secularist, it's the, it's the religious people, and the religious people say, no, it's the secularists. And he's just saying really similar to what we tend to fall prey to, and we do that. 
He says, for even sinners, he's doing that for a reason. He's, he's about to do, give us a gut punch here in just a moment, moment, okay? But he just says, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even, even sinners do that. They do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners. So, so when people say that, oh, it's those it's those Democrats, it's those Republicans. It's, it's a bit condescending. It's about, it, it's, a, it's this holier than thou, like, and you know that that's not what he's, the point that he's making here. He's not, he's not acting holier than thou, but he's trying to, he's reeling them in right now, and he's reeling us in. It's like, what is this? Why is he saying that? And he's going to, He's going to lower the boom here just in a minute, but he says, and if, and if you lend to those, verse 34, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Oh, they're sinners. They're sinners. Oh, but you are, you are ungrateful and evil. That's what he's saying. They're sinners. Oh, by the way, you're in many ways worse than them. And if it wasn't for the mercy of God, you wouldn't be saved. So he's, he's actually just then leveled the playing field. You guys don't have a higher moral ground because you are ungrateful and wicked well, thank you, Jesus. I appreciate that. He's, he just leveled the playing field. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Powerful stuff. Here we go. Buckle your seatbelts. This is heavy-duty stuff. And uh, so as we, as we look at this, so first of all, why we need it, why we need true community. So verses 12 through 19 help us with this. So after a night of intense prayer, Jesus chooses 12 apostles, these are leaders, and then comes down off the mountain and gives them the word of God, the Sermon on the Mount. And what does that mean? And, and when was the last time that happened? Now, anytime you read the scripture, you always want to read scripture in the context of the whole of scripture. What does that mean? When was, uh, when was the last time that that happened? Well, if you're studying through Scripture, you know, if you're familiar with this, in the Old Testament, book of Exodus, on Mount Sinai, God called 12 together, 12 tribes, and sent Moses down off of the mountain with his word, the Ten Commandments. Now, track with me here. You've got to get this. So this is almost a mirror image of that. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount is basically a teaching about the Ten Commandments. He's kind of unpacking the Ten Commandments. And so, so what we have to ask ourselves here, so if this is a mirror image of what happened in the Old Testament book of Exodus on Mount Sinai with Moses coming down off the mountain giving the people the Ten Commandments, well, what is the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the law? The popular view in our culture today, don't miss this, this is where most people, what most people believe. The popular view is obey God and you'll be saved. That's called religion. That's not the gospel. 
Most people confuse religion with the gospel. Here's the gospel, and here's the biblical view. When you read the Bible narratively, and as you work through it, and you begin to see what God did with the nation of Israel, you really see the pattern of salvation happening with them. God saves them from slavery, calls them his people, and then gives them the law. Exodus chapter 20, you got the Ten Commandments. What precedes Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 19. Oh, good. <laughs> that's excellent. Okay, that's, that, that wasn't very nice of me to say that. But, but basically, it's you're my people. I love you. I've led you out of slavery. Oh, here's my law. We don't obey to be saved. We are saved, therefore we obey. So, so what he's given us here, really, the purpose of the law, both in the Old and New Testament, aren't to save us, but having saved us, to make us into a people, a new true community. We are to become a people in which we show the world the beauty of true community as God had originally planned. So when people come in here, they should say, wow, these people, they have an intimacy with God. They have a love for God that I don't think I've ever seen that before. And, and the overflow of that is that they love one another like I've never seen people love people before like this. I mean, it's just, it, so there should be a beauty of this true community, the bride of Christ, attracting people to the groom, the bridegroom, Jesus that's, that's his plan. That's what he's wanted. Now, so here's a couple things. The Sermon on the Mount must not be read individualistically or moralistically. I know it's not a big words at you here this morning, but hang in there. So it should not be read individualistically or moralistically. Individualistically is what I mean is that it means that the kind of life change God wants to do in your life and the impact he wants to have in this culture cannot be done in isolation but only in community. You don't come and read the Sermon on the Mount and check the church box and go off your merry way and think you're gonna apply those truths to your life somehow in an isolated, insulated way. That's not how this all works, this whole Christian life. We'll talk more about it in a minute, but you don't read it individualistically. It's, it's always in community. And nor do you read it moralistically. I already talked about that. Moralistically means that we don't live this way to be saved, but because we are saved, this is how we live. So the Sermon on the Mount assumes a new heart. So true community, why we need, okay, 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 we got to the fill in the blanks. You guys ready? You guys better get ready to write fast. Here we go. True community, why we need it. It rises or falls on, with leadership. That's what you see him do right from the get-go. He's pointing out his leaders. And so any community, any family, any city, state, nation rises or falls on its leadership. The kind of leadership that God calls for is servant leadership. I laid that out for you in Matthew 20, 20 through 28. I'd love to talk more about that. Do not have time. We need to move on, okay? And I'm sure somewhere through the Gospel of Luke, we'll be able to study a little bit more about leadership. But leadership is really important, and you see that established. But it's only leadership within the context of having this community of people. Here's the next point, really important point. As our relationship with God goes, so goes human community. As our relationship with God goes, so goes human community. The litmus test of how well you're doing with God 
is how you relate to people. See, your, your horizontal, I always have to think, I'm directionally challenged, so I have to think for a minute. Horizontal, that's horizontal, that's vertical. Horizontal, vertical, yes, okay, got it. Uh, so horizontal, your relationships horizontally are only as good as you are vertically. If you're jacked up here, you need to work on here. The root is, is, is here. Yeah, but you have no idea the kind of person I have to work around. Oh, I understand that. I understand that. But it's, it's, the solution is going to be found in, in your walk with him. We, you have no idea the struggles that I have in my marriage. Okay. I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Nancy. Okay. Did I get myself out of that bind? Okay. So... I've, I've found that the solutions to me being able to deal with the stuff horizontally is always vertical. That's, that's the idea, okay? That's the point. Uh, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, he says, uh, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So you can see that even in the great commandment. And then you also see 1 John, the whole book of 1 John's about that. Don't tell me that you, you can't hate your brother and then say that you love God because there's an inconsistency. It's like, where does that hatred come from? It doesn't come from God because you're not connecting with God because if you connect with God, God is love. Therefore, you're gonna have, you're gonna have it more going on this way. That's the point. Okay, that's enough. Let's go to the next one, number three. To become a Christian is not just to be reconciled to God but also to be woven into a new human community that includes every race and culture. That's verse 17. You saw that. And he came down with them and stood on a level ground with a great crowd of, of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and, the, and of the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So he's, he's making that very clear. I gave you another verse. It's a good cross-reference, Revelation 5.9. Here's the fourth one. It will add to your life a dimension of strength, happiness, affirmation, and wealth that can't be found anywhere else. True community. Why we need it. Let me elaborate on that just for a moment. So it'll give you strength. Think of how fragile a thread is. And you think of a, a, a little thread. Our human lives are as fragile as threads, but if you, take, if you take thousands of threads and interweave them so that they are interdependent, they become a piece of fabric that is enormously strong and also can be very beautiful. That's how it is in community. There's that connecting. It brings happiness. How does it bring a greater degree of happiness? When you find a piece of art or music or, or you go to a movie that you really enjoyed or, or a restaurant you love, what do you do with it? Well, you, you go on Facebook and post it and tell everybody in the world. Isn't that what you do? You got to tell all your friends. I mean, it's just, you, you've got to. That's just, that's just how that works. Friendship doubles our joy. We just, we got to share it with somebody. It doubles our joy and it divides our sorrow. How about affirmation? How does it bring affirmation to our lives? Our culture says that it doesn't matter what others think about you. You decide and create your own self-worth. That's what our culture says. Don't worry about what people say. You decide how important you are. Go ahead and try it. So the world thinks you're stupid and you think you're smart. How is that going to work for you? It's not going to work at all. It's not going to work at all. In fact, you can't even get a sense of self outside of community. You need people in your life to, to bring that 
to bring that affirmation to you. But you need to be around healthy people because you could certainly have unhealthy people around you and saying all kinds of crazy things and you can believe them. So you gotta make sure that you've got some healthy. That's why we're looking at this idea of true community. That's why we have the Bible. Showing us what true community is. So, so you need people. You desperately need people just, for the, to, just to really have a sense of, of self. Listen to me. You can freak out about you know, the, whatever, the direction of our country and the, where the world is going and, and uh, you can get into all kinds of conspiracy theories. You can go out and buy you some guns and load up on ammo and go way up in the mountains and stockpile some food. And you're gonna be flat out weird. <laughs> you are. People that do that are weird. It's like, man, what the heck? Because he's out of touch with community. You're not getting affirmation from anybody. You're coming up with these wild, crazy things on your own. Or if you're, you are, you're hanging out with the wrong people that believe all those same crazy theories that you believe in. Man, you need to get some health into your life. So it, it, Jesus, uh, uh, actually God said it very, right from the beginning, 2.18 of Genesis. It is not good for man to be what? Alone, that was before the fall. That was before we fell. What was he saying? That, that health is about community with God, the triune God, and one another. We need community. And then, of course, you've got wealth. It, it gives you a wealth community. True community gives you a wealth that money cannot buy. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. I know that I am very fortunate in that respect. And then later on he writes, is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a fire? I love that. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. So that's, that's True community, why we need it. Now, what are the characteristics of it? Now, this is where it really gets hard. And so we see this in verses 20 through 36. And so first of all, let me set this up. I don't want to lose you in this. This is, gets a bit complex here. But the first thing that we, we see is the values of people inside the community that I talked about here. And then the second thing we'll talk about is their relationship to people outside the community. So there's going to be certain values within the community, and then there's going to be a way that we relate to people outside the community. It's laid out for us, verses 20 through 36. So first of all, the values of people inside the community. And you'll notice that he says in verse 20, he refers to the kingdom of God. Basically, he's just saying, hey, this is a whole new administration. In other words, a new administration, it operates on a new set of values. So if you ever get a new coach for your team, a new boss where you work, he or she will have a new way of doing things. Just makes sense. And just, that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, kingdom of God, here's a new way of doing things. Here's his values. And you'll notice there in, uh, in verses 24 through 26, I laid that out for you. You got the world's values, and then you got God's values. So the world's values, verses 24 through 26. Let me just read a couple. So woe to you, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. full. Woe to you who laugh. It almost sounds like he's saying, hey, if you start having fun here and you start laughing, woe to you. You shouldn't be happy. That's not what he's saying. We'll talk about that in a minute. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. That's the world's values. And so let me, let me unpack that for a minute. So rich, we would say power. Does our world value power? Well, it also values riches. Riches is a way to have power. 
How about full? That, that speaks of comfort. How about laugh? That laugh, it doesn't mean, it's not about, uh, it's not about having fun. It's really laughing because you have won and you're gloating. That's what he's talking about there. There's almost this uh, arrogance. There's certainly an arrogance in that. And then all men speak well of you, celebrity, acclaim, and popularity. Those are the world's values. I mean, we could add to that. Brains, beauty, bucks, you know, that's brawn. I mean, those, those are all... Those are the world's values. But did you notice what he said? He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full. So, so okay, you, you build your sense of identity. You put all your eggs in the basket of what is now. Remember what I said, now, now. Now means, basically, secularism is nowism. It's You're living for now. You have no sense of future. You have no sense of eternity. You're living for now. You're putting all your eggs in that basket. That's what he's saying. He says, woe to you. Woe to you. So you're living for your beauty. You looked in the mirror lately? I mean, if you're, if you're below 33, you're probably still looking pretty decent. But you just wait until you turn 33, and then it's all going downhill from that point on. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's all deteriorating. You've put all of your emphasis on the temporal, and one of these days, it's going to be gone. My wife was sharing with me a, uh, an article she just read. Uh, David Rockefeller died here just a week ago at age 101. Isn't that interesting? The world's oldest billionaire, heir of history's most fabled fortunes. He was the youngest and last surviving grandson of the Standard Oil founder, John D. Rockefeller. Have you ever been to New York, uh, New York City? Just right off of Times Square, you got the NBC building, really tall building right down there in the middle. And uh, it's named after this family. She read this article and basically this article was saying that uh, though a philanthropist gave away a lot of money, he died an old, bitter, angry, man. Where's his money now? Well, it's here. It's not with him. What is he facing? Will he ever come back? No, it's over. It's over. Woe to you. Woe to you. That's what he's saying. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. So he's talking about secularism, living now, not having, not having any sense of eternity whatsoever. That's what he's talking about. And then he compares that to God's values, verses 20 through 23. Weakness, sacrifice, grieving, and exclusion. Well, I, I, who wants to be on God's team? Weakness? Did you say weakness, sacrifice, grieving, and exclusion? Well, as I look at these lists, I compare these two lists, I'm thinking, first of all, I'm thinking that most churches probably wouldn't teach this and show this contrast and, and show, hey, well, here's the world's values, because to be quite honest with you, I'm kind of more attracted to the world's values than I am to this, to this idea of weakness and sacrifice, grieving and exclusion. Oh, my goodness. I mean, should we change the name of our church? I was thinking here, should we change the name of our church to the first church of the Christian masochist? I mean, based on this, the, the value difference, but, but I think you don't want to miss something here. Uh, I love what one theologian put. He says, in the life of God's people, there will be a remarkable reversal of values. 
The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. See, I don't know if you noticed this, but he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, blessed. So he's almost saying that, he's saying that simultaneously. He's just saying, there is blessing even when you take hits in life. Yeah, there's gonna be times when you're hungry. Yeah, there's gonna be times when you're poor. Yeah, your money sometimes, you're gonna run out of money. There's gonna be bad things happen to you, and yet in the midst of that, you have something much deeper, much richer, more long-lasting, because you have built your life, not on the temporal, but on the eternal. Here's your next point on your notes. So the gospel sets you free from being controlled by the world's values, and therefore causes you to relate to people, things, and circumstances differently. Imagine two people Both have great high-status jobs that are very lucrative and with lots of perks. Both of them suddenly come to realize they're about to lose their jobs and never find an equal one. How does a person in the world's kingdom react compared to how does a person in God's kingdom react? I think think you should be able to see the difference in these values. So how does a person in the world's kingdom react? They're going to be devastated. They'll be devastated. Why? Because they have no other source of acceptance, security, significance than this job. Verses 24 through 26. Woe to you who are rich, full, laugh, and popular because you are building your life on temporal things. It's a sandcastle and the waves are coming in. And if that's all you got, it's going to be flattened out. Is that what you're living for? You're living for the temporal Do you see where you're headed? You better wake up. That's what he's saying. You need to have a more solid foundation. You need to have some more substance, more substance in your life. How does a person in God's kingdom react? Yeah, of course they feel weak. Of course they feel hungry. Yeah, they're gonna have grief and exclusion. I love the Bible because it's in touch with reality. It doesn't deny any of those things. Yeah, there are struggles. You're gonna take hits. You're gonna lose family members. Oh my goodness. There's people in this church that have just recently lost family members. You're going to grieve. There's going to be sadness. You're going to be hungry. And what he's saying, though, in the midst of that, blessed, blessed are you who feel weak and hungry and and grieve and excluded. And it's almost, there's something, there's something, it's hard to understand. There's something that's happening simultaneously. Because that's what he's saying. He goes through all these blessed, 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 even in the midst of the hardest times in life. You are blessed. There's blessing. What does that mean? Next point on your notes, the gospel gives you a blessedness, a deep satisfaction that not only isn't diminished by the people, things, and circumstances, but is actually substantially developed through bad people, things, and circumstances. That that almost sounds crazy, doesn't it? James 1, 2 through 4, it says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, all kinds. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience, so let patience have its perfect work in you so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is not that you want to seek bad people, things, and circumstances, that you seek out weakness, sacrifice, grieving, and exclusion. That's going to happen in life. That's a part of life. That's what he's saying. But because you've built your life on something more solid, you don't live there. You don't have to dwell there. It's not that you want 
to seek bad people, things, and circumstances, but when they come, you prize the fact that you prize the fact that they can't rob you of the most important thing in your life, and that's intimacy with God. You have a relationship with God that brings more joy than the wealthiest billionaire in this world has. That's what the Bible says. You have an intimacy with God. You know the living God who loves you and cares for you. In fact, he's your father. He's your daddy. The God most high. That's what it's saying. And not only that, these, that, that can never be taken from you. Of course, unless that can't be taken from you, of course, unless you love anything more than you love God. And then when those things are, are, are compromised in some way, they're threatened, blocked, or lost, oh my goodness, it will devastate you. But if he's the ultimate good in your life, then you have a resource in him that money can't buy that will take you through anything. You can face anything. You can face anything. That's what he's talking about here. Oh my goodness, intimacy with God. And what's amazing is that not only do you have this intimacy with God, but in fact, it can drive you closer. Hard times can drive you closer to him, making you happier, wiser, deeper, stronger, and kinder than you've ever been before. Some of the, the, the greatest depth I've ever gotten from people and, and the wisdom that I've, I've heard from people have come from people that have gone through really hard times, difficult times, painful times. Those are the people, even people that, I've, that even continue to this day kind of walk with a limp, kind of, Spiritually speaking, and wow, those are the people you want to hang with. Because there's a depth, there's an intimacy. They've gone through the, through the fire, and, they, and their lives are like pure gold. But this also adds something else here, is that uh, the gospel eliminates any towering and cowering kind of relationships. So it sets us free psychologically from the world's values, and, and so we're free sociologically. And so, so let me ask you this. How do people who look to their job, their money, or status for their primary identity, how do they relate to people who have just never made it quite like them? Well, they just haven't made it quite like me. Well, they're going to tower over people with less and cower under people with, with more. There's almost a pecking order, and yet the Bible's saying there should be no pecking order in, the, in my community. See, true community is made up of people who never used to be able to get along outside of Christ, and inside of Christ they can get along. People you used to disdain, people you used to look down at, you don't, you don't anymore if you're in in Christ's kingdom, your friendships, your relationships, the way you look at people changes in God's kingdom. See, in God's kingdom, all lives matter. All lives matter. And so that's, that's the values. That's the values of people inside the community. So here's number two, their relationship to people outside of, outside of community. Verses 27 through 34. Now, by the way, this is about relationships to people outside the community, but of course, it applies also to people within the community. Everything here also apply, applies to, to marriage. Love your enemies, do good to those who curse you. Sounds like it applies to marriage to me. You guys are supposed to laugh. You're making me really nervous right now. <laughs> Nobody can relate to that? Okay, there's like two of us in here. Yeah. Let me say that again. All of this applies, everything here applies to marriage. Love your enemies. 
do good to those who curse you? Oh, now I got it. Wake up. Okay, how many can relate to that? Okay, for those of you that didn't raise your hand, we're going to talk about integrity next weekend. You better come back. Seriously, I am. We're going to talk about honesty and integrity. But I'm telling you what, there have been times, there have been times I've been sleeping with the enemy. And I slept with one eye open. Here, honey, let me help you with that pillow over your face. It's scary. Who's it more scary for, me or Nancy? You decide. Somebody said, Nancy, you're out of here. Excommunication. Let's bring some church discipline right here. Oh, wait a minute. She's married to one of the elders. Okay, sorry. I guess I can't do that. Okay, so here, here's the idea. Here's the point. Okay. If this behavior, if this is the behavior that God wants f- with people outside his family, even more so is that true with people inside his family. Does that make sense? So if he's saying, hey, love your enemies, and I'm like, can't even hardly get along with people within the community of God, there's something wrong. I, I mean, I've got to learn how to do that sometimes even first before I can even love my enemies out there. I've got to learn how to love the people here. So all of this applies right here as much as it applies out there. And for you to be able to do this, I believe that he lays out for us, there's inner work and there's outer work. And you've got to start with the inner work. And look at verses 27 through 28. If you've got your Bibles open, he says, For I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Well, that takes some work, doesn't it? Isn't there a little work you've got to do on your heart, the inner work, to be able to pray for someone that abused you? Because the first thing I want to do is punch them in the neck and the throat. I'm going to scratch their eyes out. Sounds like a woman, doesn't it? I probably shouldn't say that. It's like, you sound like a girl. Scratch your eyes out. That's messed up. I mean, hey, come on. How many can relate to that? You, you, somebody does something to you that's wrong, what do you, how many can relate to that? The first thing, your first natural response is, I'm going to get back at them. How dare them? Okay. And for those of you that didn't raise your hand, integrity next weekend, okay? (laughs) We're going to talk about integrity. But my goodness, that's the first thing. And so he's just saying, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Sounds like there's going to have to be a lot of inner work going on. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. And so I I titled this inner work, here's your fill in the blank, do not be overcome by evil, because that's what he's saying. Romans 12, 21a, don't become like the evil that is being done to you. That's the first thing. So when you have been mistreated, when you've been mistreated, by the way, you will be mistreated We'll all be mistreated. When you are mistreated, don't become like the evil that is being done to you. In fact, when you are mistreated, listen to me, everybody look up here. You only have two choices. You only have two choices when you're mistreated. It's either the bondage of bitterness or the freedom of forgiveness. Those are the only two choices you have. That's it. That's all you have. And so what I typically do, there's, here's kind of a process I've worked through the years. First thing I do when I, when I see my wife, which she very seldom does, lash out at me, or if I have a coworker that lashes out at me, I've got to ask this question, did I say or do something that was unloving? 
Did I, did I agitate that? Did I stir that up? Did I provoke that? Or part of that I can also say, or is this baggage from their past or a combination of both? And what I mean by past baggage, I'm talking about, you know, uh, if you've ever had a sunburn before, or you go up and pat somebody that has a sunburn, if someone has a sunburn, they put a shirt on, they're kind of walking a little bit gingerly, and you walk up and hug them, Ooh! and they go, hey, I got a sunburn, don't you know that? No, I didn't know that, I didn't see that. So there's that overreaction. Anytime you're talking, and you're carrying a conversation, all of a sudden someone overreacts, they have that, ah, you go, whoa, what was that? I just mentioned that person's name, I just said this. What's going on? What's happening in your heart? I know that uh, this almost sounds like a cliche and you've heard it before, but let me say it again. I'm gonna pound this deep inside of you. Hurt people, hurt people. And healed people, heal people. Forgiven people, forgive people. And what I've got to do is I'm working through this hurt and how I've been mistreated. The more I realize how much God has forgiven me is to the degree that I'm able to forgive them. If I'm not forgiving people this way, it's because I, I'm not living in the reality of his forgiveness of me. Because what I've done to God is much more than they'll ever do to me. That's just the reality. Not only that, I begin to work beyond that and I begin to realize that the more I realize that God is the infallible judge who will not let any wrongdoing go unpunished and the more... The more you realize that, the more you will let go of grudges, you'll let grudges go and revenge die, and you'll begin to compassionately pray that they find his mercy through repentance before it's too late, because you will actually pity them, because they have to stand before God. Why, why did he say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you? Are you kidding me? I wouldn't want it to have been there when... Uh, this David Rockefeller died at 101, 101, as he stands before the creator of the galaxies. Be, that would be scary. If he doesn't know him, spend his whole life on himself, it's pretty scary. And that's why when you begin to understand that, he, that God's an infallible judge, but also you have to work on your emotional wealth. There's an emotional wealth and spiritual health that I need to have and realize that whatever they have taken from you is nothing compared to what, what you have in Christ. Whatever they've taken from you is nothing compared to what you have in Christ. Do you realize what you have in him, the intimacy and the joy of his presence in your life? Oh my goodness, that can never be taken from you. And it's much more than whatever you'll experience. Now, I did a, a whole teaching series. We did a whole teaching series a year ago, a year ago during this time. And it was on relationships, a mess worth making. And we dealt with uh, difficult people and forgiveness and conflict, conflict resolution, boundaries and communication. It was really a, a popular series. I'd encourage you to get our DB app, download it. And the two most popular teachings of that series uh, we're communication and forgiveness. I can't spend any more time on forgiveness, but forgiveness is really key to that inner work that needs to go on in your life before you can do the outer work. And here's the, here's the outer work. The outer work is overcome evil with good. 
Romans 12, 21b. So you, you gotta do not be overcome by evil. Don't become like the evil that's being done to you and then overcome evil with good. And you see that in verses 29 through 34. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do. So he's talking about doing now. So having done the inner work, my attitude towards them, forgiveness, now I'm going to do the outer work. I've got to now talk with them and respond to them. That's what he's talking about. So, so when you are mistreated, how do you respond? The sinful human heart has two natural responses. This is a sinful response. This is where we typically go. Passive and vindictive. The passive response is that let them strike you again on the same cheek over and over again. And I've talked with people who, who allow this kind of mistreatment and, and there's something broken inside of them because it's less painful to take the mistreatment than to confront. It's less painful to do that. And there's, that's bro- you're broken if you're doing that, if you're taking abuse in some way. That's the passive response. And then there's the vindictive response. You strike them on their cheek. Oh, yeah? You can dish it out. I can give it back. I'll take you out. I mean, that's, that's kind of our culture. And, and, and so those are the two main ways that we do it. And there are other combinations. By the way, what I'm sharing with you is really some good uh, conflict resolution skills. You need to, as you walk through this, but there are, there are other combinations of those two, and this is kind of one where I fall prey to, is that I'm very passive. You go from passive, so you go, you just take it, you take it, you take it, you take it, you take it, and then all of a sudden, you, because you've pushed that stuff down inside of you, it builds up until you do what? You blow up, and you want to rip their eyes out, Okay? So that's what, you, that's what you do. It's very pathological. We tend to do that. We just, we take it, we take it, we take it. There's really a lack of integrity when I've done that. And my tendency is to do that. And so that's one combination. Another combination is even more pathological. I say more pathological because they're all pathological. Because they're all bad. But this is more pathological. You do both at once. You're passive on the outside. You're the kindest person in the world and yet you're vindictive on the inside. And you guys have read it in the paper before, you know, and then one day you go, you get a gun and shoot all your coworkers and your family members. And then the news media comes along and they interview all your friends and they go, he was the nicest guy in the world. We had no idea because there was a lack of integrity because we're all jacked up. We shove stuff down inside of it. We don't deal with the reality of life. And then we explode. You're going to have to come back next week because we're going to talk about integrity, talk about how to work through that stuff. But that's, that's, that's the way it works. And so all of, all of those approaches are sinful and selfish because they are about your comfort and your good. Now, in a culture that kisses cheeks, that was this culture we're talking about, in a culture that kisses cheeks, Turn the other cheek means this. I bet some of you didn't, uh, don't understand this. Let me, let me help you to understand. Turn the other cheek means let's try this relationship thing again. You hit me on this cheek, but I'm going to turn this cheek and, and want you to kiss this cheek. Let's try it all over again. Let's do it again. That's what that means. And, uh, and the reason why it means that, don't ever, don't ever believe, it is never, it is never, Listen to me, it is never loving to let someone sin against you or anybody else. The Bible talks 
very profoundly about standing up for justice. You don't just take it. That's wrong. Well, he got kind of worked up over that one just then, didn't he? Yeah, I did. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like, that's not what it's saying. I hear that verse misinterpreted a lot. True love forgives the most but condones the least. It forgives the most, condones the least. Once you have drained yourself of ill will, in, uh, that's the inner work, speak the truth in love, that's the outer work. So it is saying we are to do good to those who mistreat us. That's what it's saying. Would you guys agree with that? It's saying do good to those who mistreat you. So the best thing for someone who has mistreated you is not for them to continue to mistreat you. It's for their eyes to be opened. And the only way their eyes will be opened is you have to confront them, but you speak the truth in love. There's no ill will in you. There's no ill will. In love, you speak the truth. And that's... That's hard, but that's supernatural. That's what God wants to do in our lives. But if you don't, if you don't do the inner work, the outer work will fail. Here's a conversation. Here's a conversation I heard about by a grown woman talking to her father on the phone. She was very quiet for a minute, and then suddenly she said, Dad, Dad, I want you to know, and I've told you before, that I cannot allow you to talk to me or mom that way. I've told you before, I've told you before, we won't put up with it, and therefore, I'm going to hang up right now in the middle of this conversation. I want you to know I care for you, and I love you, and I really want to have a good relationship with you. If you're willing to change, I'm willing to proceed in this relationship, but I'm not going to listen to this, so I will call back later. I care a lot about you. Click. Now, she wasn't passive, she wasn't vindictive, she wasn't a combination of both, but having drained herself of ill will, the inner work, she spoke the truth in love, that's the outer work. So it only takes one to forgive, two to reconcile, but a person must show by his actions over time that he is trustworthy before you will even get close to them. They have to prove that trust over time. So, so when you find a church where there is no towering or cowering on the inside and there is a, is a loving of their enemies on the outside, you have found the kind of community Jesus Christ has died to create. That's the means and the motive for all of this life change. Let me give you, we're almost finished up here. So what should, I, what should motivate me? I must never forget that I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me, there was no other way. Therefore, I am a work in progress. I am a work in progress. Turn to the person next to you and say this. You are a work in progress, okay? You are a work in progress, real quick. Okay, okay. Actually, I probably should have asked you to say, I'm a work in progress, because some of you are finding too much delight in saying that to the person <laughs> next to you. You were too happy to say that, weren't you? You're a work in progress. Believe me, I know it. It's hard, okay? But hey, that's all of us. That's all of us. All of us. And, and, and that's what's fascinating. Verses 32, 33, 34. Even sinners do that. Oh, by the way, you're wicked and ungrateful. That's what he's saying. Sinners, oh, you know those sinners. Oh, by the way, God was merciful to you because he had to be. 
because you were wicked and ungrateful. That's the point. If you miss that, you, you miss what he's talking about here. And so this eliminates pride, which is at the root of our relational conflict and unforgiveness. Romans 3.23, for all of sin. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So this humility will keep you from expecting to find the perfect community or believing the lie that you don't need community. Here's the next one. The most, the most high, the most high is my Father who is kind and merciful to me even when I'm ungrateful and, and evil. Therefore, I will do the same for you. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Luke 11.13, eventually we're going to get to that. And Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer. And he says, oh, you though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. You know you're evil. I've told you that. I've taught you that. That's Jesus talking to his disciples. You're evil and you still give good gifts to your children. How much more does your father give good gifts to you in your evilness? And yet that's what transforms our lives. This will eliminate fear and gives you the courage that keeps you from running when relationships get difficult. So until you are amazed by the mercy he gave you, you will never be empowered to give the mercy he requires of you. So here's the last statement on your notes. Christianity is about a man dying on the cross for his enemies. That's you and I. So the church is a band of natural enemies. That's you and I, natural enemies, sinners by nature. It's a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. So Father, help us, help us. Help us, we, we need your help to realize more than ever before that in Christ we are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people in the world. Therefore, may we be the most loving, forgiving, reconciling people in this world for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.